Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Atonement in Mormon Thought by Blake Osler The Christian doctrine of atonement teaches that it is because of Christ's life, suffering, death, and resurrection that forgiveness of sins is possible. Sin consists in injury to human relationships and resulting alienation. Atonement consists in eradicating from our lives whatever gets in the way of loving relationships with God and each other. Atonement thus heals our alienation. Why is it that healing, reconciliation, and unity are not possible without Christ? The traditional answers have focused on various metaphors and images that don't seem to answer this question. They seem to entail that Christ must overcome the anger of an unjust and unloving father, deal with the devil, or appease some realm of cosmic absolutes. Further, they don't really explain why simply forgiving and being forgiven are impossible without these punishments, dealings, and cosmic contraptions. The Mormon scriptures suggest a departure from the traditional explanations signaled by focusing on Christ's experience in Gethsemane. In preparation for the experiences to follow, Christ prays to be one in unity with the disciples just as he is one with the Father. He also prays for return of his pre-mortal glory that he enjoyed with the Father as the second divine person of the Godhead before the world. Further, Christ experiences surpassing spiritual anguish in Gethsemane for humans' sin as a prelude to the path to death on a Roman cross. It is in Gethsemane that the purpose of atonement is realized. Achieving a relationship of loving and interpenetrating unity of the type enjoyed by the divine persons in the Godhead. The focus on Gethsemane in Mormon scriptures is the story of how the alienation inherent in mortal life is overcome and healed by the compassion that God learns by suffering as a mortal. Atonement is the story of God's gracious offer of love to accept us as worthy of covenant relationship just as we are and to enter into a relationship in which the energies of our lives are literally mingled as one so that we can grow and be made over in in the divine image. A. Desiderata for a Theory of Atonement The doctrine of atonement is the claim that through Jesus' incarnation as God into mortal life, death, and resurrection, we are saved from sin and reconciled to God. It is the core of the Christian gospel. The notion that Christ suffered excruciating pain in Gethsemane and took the pain of our sins upon him is central to Mormon claims about atonement. However, it is important to distinguish between the doctrine of atonement, which is a claim of faith from a symbolic or metaphorical expression of atonement, and both from a theory of atonement. One can believe something without understanding it. I believe that quantum physics is more or less accurate, but I don't fully understand quantum theory well. Nevertheless, one must have some grasp of what is asserted to have faith that it is true. If the center of one's faith happened to be that blicks can jump over the moon, such a claim literally cannot be believed because we have no idea what is being asserted. Is the atonement like that? We believe it but have no idea what is being asserted when we say that Christ atoned for our sins? A symbolic or metaphorical expression of atonement tells us something about what atonement is like. There are at least five dominant metaphors for atonement in the earliest Christian scripture. 1. 
Atonement is like being acquitted in a court of law and therefore accepted as in right covenant relationship with God. The doctrine of justification by faith in Romans 3.21 through 4.25, 1 Corinthians 1.30. 2. Atonement is like having the price of one's release from slavery paid by a charitable benefactor. The doctrine of redemption, Ephesians 1.7, Colossians 1.14. 3. Atonement is like being reconciled from alienation and healing a breach of relationship between friends. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-19, Colossians 1, 20-21. 4. Atonement is like a sacrificial offering of a pascal lamb or other offering that expiates or eradicates sin. Hebrews 10, 12, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. 5. Atonement is like a military victory over forces of evil. Galatians 1.4, Colossians 2.15 However, the word pictures give rise to numerous notions that don't often work well together. They give rise to numerous questions that aren't answered by such metaphors. The notion that the suffering of a man who lived more than 2,000 years ago is somehow operative in enabling us to be forgiven of our sins here and now, or more technically, to have our sins eradicated through expiation, is puzzling to say the least. How could the fact that a man suffered and died 2,000 years ago still have some relation to my repentance here and now? How is it possible that the sins that I commit now could cause him pain 2,000 years ago? Yet it is as clear as anything can be that the scriptures assert in many varied ways that Christ suffered pain because he takes our sins and infirmities upon him. Such statements are ubiquitous in both Old and New Testaments and the Mormon scriptures. A theory of atonement, in contrast, is an explanation of how Christ's life, death, and resurrection save us from sin and reconcile us to God, and why Christ's life, death, and resurrection make a difference for us here and now. Such theories attempt to make sense of the various scriptural metaphors and symbols, and to defend the basic faith claims against arguments that atonement is unintelligible, immoral, or just plain unnecessary to explain being forgiven. Atonement is often called a solution to a problem where there is no problem. Indeed, it looks like Christianity erroneously asserts that we need a Savior that can be appropriated for salvation only within the confines of the Christian's faith tradition. Do we even need an atonement to be forgiven or to forgive? It seems to me that a theory of atonement ought to answer, or at least cast some light upon, at least the following questions. 1. How is Christ's life, death, and resurrection either necessary or uniquely beneficial to expiate or eradicate the effects of sin in our lives so that we are reconciled to God here and now? 2. Why can't we just be forgiven without someone suffering? 3. Why does Christ's suffering and experience atone for our sins in a way that the Father and the Holy Ghost do not? 4. How could Christ bear our sins, or take our sins upon him, that we commit in the here and now in a way that caused him to suffer? 5. How do the ordinances of sacrament and baptism, among others, signify what occurs in atonement? In addition, a theory of atonement ought to meet Abelard's constraint, to develop a model of atonement that is neither unintelligible, arbitrary, illogical, nor moral. After all, who wouldn't prefer a theory which is intelligible, non-arbitrary, logically coherent, and morally acceptable? Why should a theory of atonement be required to answer just these questions? 
A theory is judged by the, its ability to best explain the relevant data. Our own experiences of salvation through Christ, release from sin, reconciliation to God, and forgiving and being forgiven. However, the primary data for any theory of atonement are the scriptural claims about the atonement and experiences of atonement expressed in scripture. It seems to me that few claims are better attested in the Mormon canon of scripture than these. A. Christ takes upon him and into his being the effects of our sins. Example. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And that was First Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. B. As a result of bearing our sins, Christ suffers physically and spiritually. Examples of this one. And lo, he shall suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from every poor, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and the abominations of his people. That's Mosiah 3, 7. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's Mosiah 14 and Isaiah 53. He took upon himself our infirmities and bare our sickness. Matthew chapter 20 verse 28. His sweat was as if it were great drops of blood. Luke 22:44. Christ was once suffered to bear the sins of many. Hebrews 9:28. And he shall go forth, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith, He will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people, and he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people, and he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. That was Alma. Chapter 7, verses 11 through 12. C. Because Christ bears our sins, we are released from the effects of our sins and our alienation, and we are therefore reconciled to God and found in Christ. Examples of this. My blood was shed for many for the remission of sins. In Matthew twenty-six twenty-eight, Justified by his blood, we shall be saved. That's Romans 5, 9. Therefore, if any man can be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. 
at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17-19. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's Ephesians 2, 13. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. Doctrine and Covenants, chapter 19, verse 16. For behold, the Lord, your Redeemer, suffered death in the flesh, wherefore he suffered the pain of all men, that all men might repent and come unto him. That's Doctrine and Covenants, 18.11. That he came into the world, even Jesus, to be crucified for the world, and to bear the sins of the world, and to sanctify the world, and to cleanse it from all unrighteousness. Doctrine and Covenants, 76.41. D. Christ's mercy, shown in taking upon himself our iniquities, satisfies the demands of justice for those that repent. Examples of this. For the atonement satisfieth the demands of justice upon all those who have not the law given to them. 2 Nephi chapter 9, verse 26. Therefore, if that man repenteth not, and remaineth and dieth an enemy to God, the demands of divine justice do awaken his immortal soul to a lively sense of his own guilt. That's Mosiah 2.38. And thus mercy can satisfy the demands of justice, and encircles them in the arms of safety, while he that exercises no faith unto repentance is exposed to the whole law of the demands of justice. Therefore only unto him that has faith unto repentance is brought about the great and eternal plan of redemption. Mosiah 15.9. Having the bowels of mercy, being filled with compassion towards the children of men, standing betwixt them and justice, having broken the bands of death, taken upon himself their iniquity and their transgressions, having redeemed them and satisfied the demands of justice. That was Alma 34.16. And now the plan of mercy could not be brought about except an atonement should be made. Therefore God himself atoneth for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy, to appease the demands of justice, that God might be a perfect, just God and a merciful God also. For behold, justice exerciseth all his demands, and also mercy claimeth all which is her own, and thus none but the truly penitent are saved. That's Alma, chapter 42, verses 15 and 24. I suggest that no theory in the history of Christianity to date has actually met the burden of explaining how Christ's suffering somehow eradicates our sin in the here and now. I submit that no theory to date has adequately answered the questions raised by the claim that because of Christ our sins are forgiven. None has adequately explained how Christ could possibly bear the pain of sins that haven't even occurred yet, and might not occur because sin is necessarily the result of free choices that could be otherwise. Finally, no theory that I am aware of meets Abelard's constraint of providing a non-arbitrary explanation for Christ's atonement that is both coherent and morally acceptable. C. Mormon Theories of Atonement There have been several theories of atonement that are both historically unique and inherently interesting. I think it is safe to say that most Mormons accept a form of penal substitution theory of atonement. The new theories have been suggested largely out of dissatisfaction with substitutionary theories and the unique beliefs and resources of the revelations and teachings of Joseph Smith. 1. The Demand of Eternal Intelligences for Justice A novel and interesting theory was introduced by Cleon Skousen. As Skousen expresses it, all material reality consists of intelligences that act as they do because of their trust in God. 
God's power and glory depend upon the faith and trust that the intelligences place in God. If they did not honor and trust God, then God would cease to be God, which is taken from Alma 42, 13 and 22 and Mormon chapter 9, verse 19. The fact that we have sinned and not been punished for it calls into question God's governance and justice. The intelligences demand justice. If the intelligences are not satisfied, then they will rebel against God's governance and God will cease to be God. The intelligences demand that someone must suffer for the wrongs that have been committed. To satisfy the demand for justice, God sends his own son because the intelligences respect and trust the son as much as they do God. However, when they see the suffering of a person who is entirely innocent and without sin, whom they love, they are revolted by their own demand for justice. They see in effect that their demand for justice is itself a form of injustice and refusal to forgive. Their demand for justice is thus appeased and replaced with a change of heart that leads the intelligences to be merciful. There is a lot to like in this theory. It goes a ways towards answering some of the questions that form the basis of a theory of atonement. There is no eternal law that prevents God from forgiving us from sin. He could just forgive us. However, there is an unjust demand from subjects of the kingdom that requires that someone must pay the price for sin by suffering. There is a reason why the suffering must be done by Christ, or at least someone like him. The intelligences must respect and love the victim of the unjust crucifixion. Further, the extent of the suffering must be so excessive and unjust that it shocks the conscience and awakens feelings of outrage and reconsideration of one's own unjust demands and refusal to forgive without someone giving a pound of flesh. The suffering is related to forgiveness because it occasions a decision to let go of unjust demands for retribution and thus leads to forgiveness and repentance. This theory exposes our own unjust demands for justice and refusal to forgive others. It exposes our own unjust refusal to let go of the demands for retribution. All of this is very enlightening. However, the theory doesn't account for the scriptural data that must be explained by a theory of atonement. It doesn't connect the scriptural sense in which Christ actually bears our sins. According to scripture, the pain that Christ suffers arises from taking our sins upon himself and indeed into his own person. See 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 24 for example. My sins don't seem to be involved in anything that Christ does because the intelligences were persuaded to give up their unjust demands 2,000 years ago. What I do in the here and now seems totally disconnected from this explanation for atonement. Perhaps it could be said that Christ bears the brunt of an unjust demand for retribution and in this sense bears the sins of the intelligences. However, our sins are not limited to just making unjust demands for retribution. Moreover, the atonement functions by God giving into unjust demands and thus entails that God, in fact, is complicit in unjustly requiring his son to suffer to appease these unjust demands. Moreover, the biggest question it raises for me is, why doesn't the Father himself undergo the punishment to assuage the unjust demands? This view seems to entail that the Father is both unjust and a coward. Wouldn't the intelligences lose faith and trust in the Father for failing to take accountability for the solution? Perhaps it could be argued that it was tougher for the father to stand on the sidelines and watch his son suffer. But that merely underscores that the father had every reason to undergo the unjust suffering himself. Moreover, is God's status as God really that precarious? If the intelligences simply fail to honor him, God ceases to be God? If that is so, why would such a God inspire us at all? 
let alone be in a position to command our total allegiance as he is wont to do throughout all scriptural texts. Moreover, the scriptural warrant for this view is obviously questionable. Alma's discussion of the demands of justice in Alma 34 and 42 rather clearly has nothing to do with the demands of intelligences for someone to pay the price of violation of the law. 2. The Self-Rejection Moral Theory of Atonement Eugene England gives an eloquent expression to his view of atonement. What is unique is that England presents the demands of justice spoken of by Alma 34 and 32 as our own demand for justice to be meted out to ourselves for our own moral failures. We are estranged from ourselves by our own sense of moral responsibility for what we have done that is beyond our power to repair, and thus we are unable to accept ourselves. Quote, Paradoxically, our moral sense of justice both brings me to the awareness of sin that must begin all repentance, and yet interferes with my attempts to repent. I feel that every action must bear its consequences, and that I must justify my actions to myself. Since there is a gap between belief and action, I am in a state which brings into my heart and mind a sense of guilt, of unbearable division within myself. As Alma taught his sinful son Corianton, there was a punishment affixed, and a just law given, which brought remorse of conscience unto man. That's Alma 42.18. This same moral nature, this sense of justice that demands satisfaction, causes me to want to improve my life but also to insist that I pay the penalty in some way for my sin. But of course, there is no way I can finally do this. God pierces to the heart of this paradox through the atonement, and it becomes possible for us personally to experience both alienation and reconciliation, which opens us to the full meaning of both good and evil, bringing us to a condition of meekness and lowliness of heart where we can freely accept from God the power to be a God. And Alma also taught his son this other essential role God plays in the atonement. Besides giving mortals remorse of conscience, by giving the law and judging us, God himself atoneth for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy to appease the demands of justice. That's Alma 42, verse 15. End quote. However, God intervenes through Jesus to assuage this sense of moral responsibility that leads to estrangement from God and ourselves. He penetrates our refusal to accept ourselves by showing us that we are worthy of our own self-acceptance because God accepts us unconditionally. Quote, Christ is the unique manifestation in human experience of the fullness of that unconditional love from God which Paul chose to represent with the Greek term agape. As Paul expressed it, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, in Romans 5.8. Christ's sacrificial love was not conditional upon our qualities, our repentance, anything. He expressed his love to us while we were yet in our sins, not completing the process of forgiveness, which depends on our response, but initiating it in a free act of mercy. This is a kind of love quite independent from the notion of justice. There is no quid pro quo about it. And that is precisely why it is redemptive. It takes a risk, without calculation, on the possibility that we can realize our infinite worth. It gets directly at that barrier in us, our sense of justice, which makes me incapable of having unconditional love for myself, unable to respond positively to my own potential, because I am unable to forgive myself, unable to be at peace with myself until I have somehow made up in suffering for my sins something I am utterly incapable of doing. The demands of justice that Amulek and Alma are talking about, which must be overpowered, are from 
our own sense of justice, not some abstract eternal principle, but our own demands on ourselves, those demands which bring us into estrangement with ourselves as we gain new knowledge of right but do not live up to it, and thus begin the process of growth through repentance. But we cannot complete the process. End quote. Ultimately, England's theory must be seen as a form of moral influence theory. The effect upon us is a psychological realization that we are worthwhile. As England expresses it, quote, that the atonement is performed by Christ, the Son and revelation of God, is, of course, crucial. He represents to us the ultimate source of justice and is the one whose teachings and example bring us directly to face our need for repentance. He awakens our own sense of justice and stands as a judge over all our actions, and thus only he can fully release us from what becomes the immobilizing burden of that judgment through the power of mercy extended unconditionally in his atonement, end quote. However, when pressing his own theory with the questions as to why Christ must suffer and how the suffering is supposed to link up with our sins here and now, he ultimately begs off giving an answer because the New Testament is not a book of theology and we are best left with a kaleidoscope of various metaphors. Quote, the question, why is man's salvation dependent on Christ and the events surrounding his death, is the most central and the most difficult question in Christian theology. The answers, and there are many, are, as I have said, the chief scandal of Christianity to the non-believer. Attempts to define logical theories of the atonement based on New Testament scriptures have been largely contradictory and ultimately futile, mainly because the New Testament is not a book of theology, a logical treatise, but rather gives us the reaction, the varied emotional responses, end quote. However, England does claim that the atonement is necessary because only Christ can motivate the kind of change to accept ourselves with our own self-love. Quote, The atonement is a necessary but not sufficient factor in salvation from sin, necessary because only Christ can fully motivate the process in free agents, and insufficient because an agent must respond and complete the process. There is no condition in which we can imagine God being unable to forgive, the question is, what effect will the forgiveness have? The forgiveness is meaningless unless it leads to repentance, end quote. However, it seems to me that England is mistaken in his assertion that only Christ can motivate the process of self-love in agents, much less the kind of repentance that can be accomplished even without any atonement on England's own view. There are numerous examples of persons who have suffered unjustly and with forbearance and love, why don't the sufferings of Peter, who was supposedly crucified upside down, or Mahatma Gandhi, suffice without God himself undergoing the pain of a Roman crucifixion? According to England, only Christ will do because he is the ultimate source of justice. However, just what it could mean for Christ to be the ultimate source of justice is vague indeed. Certainly, such an extravagant metaphysical and metaethical claim requires some support. I fail to see how England's observations provide us with anything more than an inspiring example of loving acceptance. But of course, Christ was far from unique in being an inspiring example of love. Further, one hardly has to look to Christ for an example of a human suffering injustice at the hands of others or undeserved death. Moreover, there doesn't seem to be any sense in which Christ bears our sins on this view. There is no sense in which his suffering is related to our actual sins or to forgiveness of those sins. 
Indeed, what is necessary isn't suffering, but merely God's loving acceptance without any prior conditions. Such loving acceptance surely can be given and manifest without any suffering or Christ bearing our sins. Further, are there really that many who are not morally blind to their own guilt? It seems that the much more common problem is a failure to take accountability for one's own evil rather than failure to accept oneself because of one's own sins. It seems that I could have all of the benefits of atonement, given England's theory, without anything done by Christ at all. All I have to do is give up my own unjustified demand for self-rejection. He provides no reason I can't just do that on my own. That, of course, is a general criticism that applies to all moral influence theories. There is nothing immoral or logical about such a view. It meets Abelard's constraint. It simply fails to explain what a theory of atonement must explain. Perhaps England would suggest that he wasn't attempting to give a theory at all, since he disclaims any such enterprise. Rather, he just wanted to illuminate some aspects of our human experience of atonement, and in that he undoubtedly succeeded. 3. The Empathy Theory of Atonement Dennis Potter presented a novel theory of atonement that focuses on qualifying Christ to be our judge. Potter argues that justice can be satisfied equally well by either punishment or forgiveness. However, forgiveness instead of punishment is only appropriate in certain circumstances. God should forgive us only when it is best to do so. The judgment as to when forgiveness is best depends on considerations such what best serves the sinner, the remorse and repentance of the sinner, and whether the sinner has truly reformed. However, according to this theory, God does not have a sufficient basis to judge us because he hasn't shared our mortal experiences of alienation and sin firsthand. Potter asserts, quote, The suffering in Gethsemane is a miraculous event in which Jesus experiences exactly what each of us experiences in our sinning. Only then can he fully understand why we do what we do. Only then can he fully understand the circumstances of our crimes. Only then can he know our remorse and know whether our hearts have changed. Being one of the judges himself, this understanding of our hearts allows him to justly pardon us in the event that we feel remorse for our sins. End quote. Christ can judge justly because he can empathize with us. The demands of justice, which the Book of Mormon say are satisfied by Christ's sacrificial atonement, are met because God will not forgive where mercy is not warranted. See 2 Nephi 2.26, Mosiah 2.38.15.9, Alma 34.16. 42.15 and 24, for references to how the mercy shown in atonement satisfies the demands of justice. Mercy is also granted when it is warranted by the best judgment based on considerations of the sinner's contrition, reparations, and reform. But this theory goes far beyond that. The empathy theory seems to adopt the Buddhist view that to understand all is to forgive all. However, it seems to require that Christ actually knows exactly what we do and the reasons that we do it before we do it. How does he know such things? Such claims seem odd since Potter accepts, as I do, that foreknowledge is incompatible with free will. Thus, God cannot know our free acts before we do them. Yet this theory seems to require that Christ knows precisely what we do and why we do it, not only for the past sins that had occurred when he was in Gethsemane, but also for the sins that we do 2,000 years later. Indeed, he knows our reasons for sitting as well. How could Christ know that about us in Gethsemane? Certainly God knows what our reasons are for sinning at the time we do them in virtue of his omniscience. But 
that means that Christ doesn't need to have the miracle in Gethsemane at all. Perhaps we should construe Potter to be asserting that Christ knows only what it is like to be subject to temptation and the reasons that one could sin. He has empathy for us in Gethsemane, not actual foreknowledge of what we will do. There is something that seems right about this assertion. Christ is better qualified to judge us, it seems, if he has shared our same mortal condition and suffered with us. But how does this account explain the extreme pain that he experienced as recounted in Scripture? This theory fails to account for the scriptural claims that Christ actually bears and suffers for our sins. It fails to account for the claim that because of this suffering, we are released from suffering and reconciled to God. While we might have more confidence in God to be fair to us, does this account do anything to explain how we become sanctified through the atonement, as the scriptures claim, such as in 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 8, and Doctrine and Covenants 74, 7? Further, doesn't this theory imply that God doesn't forgive us until after we repent? It doesn't explain how atonement enables us to repent, as Mormon scriptures repeatedly claim. See 2 Nephi chapter 2, Alma chapter 34, and 42. Why do we need atonement at all if we can repent on our own and we are deserving of forgiveness because we have repented? It seems that we have earned the right to be forgiven on such a view. This view might account for why Christ is in a position to be our judge, but it doesn't begin to explain what must be explained by an adequate theory of atonement. Number four, the divine infusion theory. Jacob Morgan has presented what he terms the divine infusion theory. According to Morgan, there are two kinds of laws of justice. The first is punitive justice, which demands a punishment if someone sins, whether they later change or not. The second type is what he calls deserts punishment, which gives a person what he she deserves. Deserts punishment is not as worried about what a person did as what a person presently is. Its goal is reform, and if a person repents, there is no reason to punish the sinner. According to Morgan, the demands of justice, spoken of in the Book of Mormon, are the demands for punishment of punitive justice. However, there is another law which applies to those who repent, the law of restoration, that is a desert-based sense of justice. Everyone gets what they deserve based on their works, or on the principle that everyone naturally reaps what they sow. There is a natural result for our actions that dictates that we receive mercy for mercy, light for light, and so forth, citing Doctrine and Covenants 88, 39, and 40. The purpose of punitive justice is to motivate us to repent. If we don't repent, then we are punished. However, mercy can overpower justice, Alma 34, 15, when repentance based upon true reform has taken place. As he states, quote, There is no need for suffering, vicarious or otherwise, once we have reformed from our sinful ways. Unquote. To be saved in the celestial kingdom, we must learn to live the celestial law. God cannot decide which kingdom of glory we will receive because that determination follows naturally from the kind of law we live. Quote, Justice is ultimately concerned with what we are, not merely that we obtain forgiveness from God, but that we become like God if we want to live where he does. End quote. Morgan contends that according to the Mormon scripture, we would be in a super-fallen state except for the atonement. That is, we would not be able to repent. We would be unable to choose to repent because we would lack a conscience that allows us to discern between right and wrong. However, as a result of the atonement, every person is enlightened with the light of Christ which provides to every person the ability to discern between right and wrong, citing 
2 Nephi 2.26, and Moroni chapter 7, 16, and 19. Thus, the atonement is the basis of human agency. Quote, Without conscience, we would have no practical hope of choosing the right and overcoming temptation. We rely on borrowed light for our recognition of goodness. We could not progress through the exercise of agency if our environment was full of temptation towards sin without anything tempting us toward righteousness. End quote. Morgan summarizes his view of atonement. Quote, the atonement was not a matter of satisfying justice's relentless thirst for suffering. Instead, it was a matter of pulling the universe far enough out of the darkness to make repentance and growth possible, end quote. God does that by giving his light to give life to all things. This light is the law by which all things are governed. Morgan thus concludes that, quote, Atonement brought life to all things by infusing the light of Christ in all things. Surely that makes the resurrection more at home in the divine infusion theory than in any of the other theories, end quote. It seems to me that all of this is correct, except the claim that there are two laws, one punitive and one deserts-based. There is only one law of justice, the law of restoration. According to this law, we reap what we sow, and if we refuse to repent, then we reap the punishment attendant to that refusal. If we demand justice and we refuse to forgive, then we will receive justice rather than mercy. However, this disagreement is merely a small correction. My biggest problem is that Morgan doesn't present a theory of atonement. Rather, he presents a theory of prevenient grace. He fails to address all of the crucial questions that a theory of atonement ought to address. Not once does he mention either Gethsemane, the cross, or even reflect on why Jesus suffers or how Jesus bears our sins in atonement. Morgan admits that the divine infusion theory, quote, does not answer the questions of why suffering is necessary to infuse the light of Christ in and through all things, but such is the testimony of modern revelation, end quote. Indeed, it is clear that Jesus does not need to suffer in order for his light to be in and through all things. It was in and through all things before he suffered. So why does he? Any theory of atonement that fails to even address the question just isn't a theory of atonement. However, I reiterate that it seems correct to me as far as it goes. D. A brief summary of the compassion theory of atonement. I suggest that the Mormon scriptures contain the suggestion of a view of atonement that radically differs from the historical theories and has the resources to avoid all of the problems of the other theories. The, barely, essential features of the compassion theory of atonement are as follows. 1. Sin is self-absorbed alienation. As we grow from childhood, we all freely, but initially innocently, make the choice to hide ourselves from God and each other by hardening our hearts. We betray ourselves by violating the law of love and choose to harden our hearts against God and others. In doing so, we alienate ourselves from authentic existence and engage in numerous behaviors that injure our relationships with others. We engage in a self-deceived way of being where we convince ourselves that remaining alienated will bring us the greatest happiness. 2. Atonement persuades us to give up our alienation. In the absence of atonement, we would be superfallen in the sense that we would be angels to the devil stuck in our own sinful nature and unable to freely choose to repent. However, God gives us our agency by A, giving us the light of Christ, which actuates our conscience and a knowledge of good and evil, and B, offering to enter into relationship with us as a matter of unconditional grace and unmerited love. Because of the atonement, we are made free to choose between relationship in eternal life 
with him or to suffer the pain of alienation and spiritual death. He offers to accept us into covenant relationship through the sign of baptism. At the moment we freely accept this free gift, we are justified or in right covenant relationship with God. In the moment of opening our hearts to accept Christ, we are redeemed from our alienation and reconciled to God. Realizing that God loves us unconditionally and regards us as justified or worthy to be in covenant relationship with Him as a matter of grace can persuade us to soften our hearts and open to relationship once again. 3. Repentance heals and maintains the relationship. In order to be in relationship with a perfect being, we must be willing to abide those conditions which are inherent in the close and abiding relationship of fellowship, the provisions of the law of love. The conditions of the law of love define the terms of the covenant necessary to remain in relationship with God and the community of God's kingdom. We must be willing to let go of our past and all of the behaviors that, by their nature, create alienation. That is, we must repent by ceasing to engage in behaviors contrary to the law of love, making reparation for the harms we have caused and asking forgiveness of those we have treated with less than love. 4. Union with Christ results in new life and light. When we repent and open to accept Christ, we accept His light into our lives to commingle with the light of our lives. We become a new person in Christ, living co-shared life in which His light shines in, in our countenances. We become new creatures. We are born again into this newness of life in Christ. He takes up a boat in us, and we take up a boat in Him. We take His name upon us, and His image is renewed in us. In this sense, we are at one with Christ. Prior to entering into union with Christ, our lives are burdened by the darkness of sin. When we overcome our alienation by entering into union of life in Christ, the darkness of our lives that we share with Him is transformed by the light of His love to a greater brightness that grows in the process of sanctification. That is, sanctification is the process of growth in the light toward deification. Deification is the fullness of glorification in union with the divine persons in the Godhead. 5. A condition of entering into union is willingness to be vulnerable to the other in relationship. Love, by its very nature, entails vulnerability to the free choices of the other with whom one is in relationship. The compassion theory maintains that our sins cause pain for those who would choose to be in the relationship with us as a natural necessity of the way that authentic relationships function. It is painful to be in relationship with us who violate the law of love in many ways. In addition, divine union entails the coherence or indwelling of our lives in each other. According to Mormon scriptures, we share our light or life's energy with each other in union. The compassion theory posits that when the darkness of our sins is mingled with the perfect light of Christ, we are enlightened. But the darkness that is in us causes him to experience momentary but excruciating pain. The darkness is a cause of momentary pain that is turned to joy through repentance and healing relationship. Christ is not punished for our sins, nor does he bear our shameful guilt or moral culpability. Rather, what he experiences is the pain and subsequent joy of entering into relationship of shared life and light with imperfect humans. 6. Christ is uniquely able to accomplish the atonement. 
to enter into the union of life in a way that expresses not merely empathy and omniscient knowing, but experiential sharing of our alienated condition, Christ learned compassion by the things that he suffered. According to Mormon scripture, Christ learned how to succor us and share our lives fully by the things that he suffered as a mortal. Christ is uniquely qualified by his experience because he achieved a fullness of union and glory with the Father while in the Garden of Gethsemane and knew firsthand the pain of omniscient empathy of all the sin that had occurred in the world. Further, fully divine beings, as such, cannot experience firsthand the alienation that is the essence of our human condition because they abide in a relationship of complete union with the divine persons. Only by becoming mortal and experiencing alienation firsthand can such experiential knowledge be possible. Christ suffered the essence of spiritual death while on the cross when he experienced complete abandonment by the Father following his complete union with the Father. Only he, in all of history, knew the fullness of the loss of that union and the depth of pain of complete abandonment. These experiences uniquely qualify Christ to succor us in pain and to persuade us to overcome our alienation by choosing to repent and enter into relationship with him. Only Christ had the fullness of experience to transform our darkness with his light in virtue of his experiences in Gethsemane and on the cross. His forgiveness of those who nailed him to the cross while in this state of alienated abandonment is the completion of divine love necessary to render at one moment or atonement and overcome our alienation. Christ is also uniquely able to effect atonement because he has power in himself to lay down his life and take it up again. Christ is able to resurrect and to grant the power of resurrection to us as well. The resurrection overcomes our alienation by bringing us back into the presence of God to be judged according to our works. We are judged according to the desires of our hearts by the law of restoration, which returns to us that which we truly desire as shown by our works in life. Alma 41. The law of restoration is also recognized by the fact that the degree of light or glory that quickens or gives life to our bodies in the resurrection, is dependent on whether we abide a telestial, terrestrial, or celestial law. See Doctrine and Covenants 88, verses 20 through 32. Number 7. Atonement is the mode of relationship God seeks to have with us. To be at one is to be in divine union. Being at one is the very mode of being that Christ seeks with us at all times. He seeks to have the greatest possible unity of loving relationship. He seeks for us to relate to him in the very same unity of oneness with which he relates to the Father and Holy Ghost. Through our union with Christ, we shall thus also be at one with the divine persons in the Godhead in the same sense that they are one. 8. Christ satisfied the demands of justice of the law of restoration. Christ suffered as the first person ever to join together the fullness of capacity for experience as God with mortal experience, intimately acquainted with human suffering firsthand. The magnitude of suffering was so great that Christ shrank at the prospect, but willingly experienced the pain to fulfill the will of the Father so that he is fully moved by compassion. Quote, and thus he shall bring salvation to all those who shall believe on his name this being the intent of this last sacrifice, to bring about the bowels of mercy, which overpowereth justice, 
and bringeth about means unto men that they may have faith unto repentance, end quote. That's Alma 34.15. Having ascended into heaven, having the bowels of mercy, being filled with compassion towards the children of men, standing betwixt them and justice, having broken the bands of death, taken upon himself their iniquity and their transgressions, having redeemed them and satisfied the demands of justice. That's Mosiah 15.9. The demands of justice are the demands of the law of restoration, that each person shall have returned what he, she, has sent out, reaping what has been sown. If we repent, then Christ willingly and lovingly accepts into his being what we would have suffered so that we don't have to. If we don't repent, then we must suffer for our own sins. See Alma 41. The purpose of the law that decrees that we shall receive according to our works in judgment is to awaken us to the suffering we will endure as a natural result of our actions if we don't repent. Thus the demands of justice are answered in Christ's atonement because we each receive what we freely choose. Nothing could be more just than that. If we choose to repent, then we receive mercy by letting go of our past and forgiving all others. As we forgive and show mercy, so we are forgiven and receive mercy. If we don't, then we suffer the full weight of justice for our sins by bearing the pain ourselves for the natural consequences of unloving conduct. Thus the compassion theory rejects the retributive notion of justice that demands that someone must suffer and pay a price in order for someone else to be forgiven. The demand of suffering and payment is replaced by the condition that one must repent and have a genuine change at the core of one's being, one's very heart, to meet the demands of justice. Because the atonement meets the demands of justice by placing us on probation and allowing us a time to repent rather than executing justice immediately, we need not be punished to satisfy the demands of justice. Instead, God has demonstrated his mercy by placing us on probation and giving us time to repent before the final judgment. See Alma 42. The primary merit of the compassion theory, in my view, is that it answers the questions and explains the basic scriptural claims that must be explained by a theory of atonement without being unintelligible, arbitrary, illogical, or immoral. I believe that it has the added merit of doing so in a way that is not merely faithful to, but explanatory of the various scriptural metaphors and claims about what the atonement achieves. It explains both how and why Christ bears our sins, it explains how and why he suffers as a result of our sins of which we repent, he bears our sins because he takes our lives into his life in union. He suffers for our sins compassionately because he knows of our suffering and actually experiences the pain of our sins as his own because there is darkness and pain in our lives that causes him to suffer. In fact, the compassion theory explains how and why Christ suffers for our actual sins but does not suffer needlessly or unjustly. He does not suffer to appease the wrath of a vengeful father or to satisfy the unjust demands of some platonic ideal of justice. He doesn't suffer because someone must suffer in retribution to pay the price. God can, in fact, forgive us without requiring that someone must first suffer. His suffering is directly related to my sins because he actually bears the pain of my sins for which I repent, but does not unjustly suffer for those of which I don't repent, and therefore suffer myself. By letting go of the pain of our sins that is in us through repentance, we are released from further suffering the effects of our sins. 
Moreover, the atonement is directly related to our justification and sanctification because it explains how the union of our lives creates a new person by eradicating our sinful being with the light of Christ. It explains how Christ freely takes our lives into His to make us over in His image. It puts in bold relief the compassionate and sacrificial love that Christ manifests to justify and redeem us and to progress in the light of sanctification. Thus, the compassion theory has the incredible virtue of being the first theory of atonement that actually answers the relevant questions and explains the scriptural data. Moreover, the compassion theory also has the benefit of illuminating and interacting with the best Pauline scholarship. Our union in Christ's life, being at one in Him, is symbolized by baptism through which we enter into covenant, die with Christ, and rise to resurrection of life with Him. We symbolize taking his life into ours, and indeed making him the energy of our lives and becoming embodied in our own bodies by symbolically eating his flesh and drinking his blood in the sacrament. The new perspective on Paul explains that Paul's focus was not imputation of Christ's righteousness to us so that we are deemed righteous when in fact we are not, but of being found in Christ through covenant faithfulness. Consider the correspondence with the compassion theory from a summary of Paul's thought by New Testament scholar Morna Hooker. Quote, the sin of Adam was reversed and the possibility of restoration opened up when Christ lived and died in obedience and was raised from life to death. Those who are baptized into him are able to share his death to sin. See Romans chapter 6 verses 4 through 11. And his status of righteousness before God, as in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Since Adam's sin brought corruption into the world, restoration involved the whole universe. Romans 8, 19-22, Colossians 1, 15-20. Christ shared our humanity, and all that means in terms of weakness, in order that we might share in his sonship and righteousness. To do this, however, Christians must share in his death and resurrection, dying to the realm of flesh and rising to life in the Spirit. Thus Paul speaks of being crucified with Christ in order that Christ may live in him. Galatians chapter 2 verses 19 and 20. The process of death and resurrection is symbolized by baptism. Romans 6, 3-4. By baptism into Christ, believers are united with him so that they now live in him. These phrases, in particular in Christ, express the close relationship between Christ and believers that is so important for Paul, end quote. The focus is on the incarnation and sharing our mortal condition with us in indwelling unity of life rather than the punishment that God imposes on him to satisfy his wrath. Perhaps the best summary of the compassion theory is Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. For our sake he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin who did not know sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, Christ. That is, he takes the effects of our sin into him to heal it, and thus the sin in us is transformed into light and light in Christ. We become the righteousness of God in Christ by accepting the light of Christ into our hearts in atonement. Thus our alienation is healed and we are reconciled to God. However, the compassion theory has been critiqued because it is 
immoral to suggest that Christ willingly accepts the pain of our sinful lives and suffers when we are justified and redeemed. Not every time we repent, as has been mistakenly argued, because it means that we foist pain upon Christ when we should be willing to suffer the pain for our sins instead of allowing him to do so. It is to these critiques that I now turn. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.